this week so on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are back with our first roundtable of the year. 2018 means we're looking back 20 years to 1998. And like we did with previous seasons, we're going to do our albums of 20 years ago. We did 1996. We did 1997. Logically, we're going to 1998. Jay, are you excited? I am, and then we'll be reviewing quite a few of these records throughout the year. So Yeah, we've already gotten uh, a couple uh, with our yep. previous review of The Gathering, and then I'm sure some albums that we're going to be uh, hitting on this year. Um, actually, some have already been suggested by our Patreon uh, patrons for their 12-month review. We already know that they're locked in, and so we'll mention them tonight, but we're going to get into full reviews uh, in the coming weeks and months. So to help us with this discussion, like we always like to do on these roundtables, it's not just about you and me, Jay. It's about bringing in all of our uh, our favorite guests that we have. And uh, we got a, a roundtable of veteran dig-me-out guests that uh, I could turn the show over and they could run this thing uh, without me even being here. That's how confident I am in our, in our roundtable tonight. Uh, joining us from the Windy City... Andy Dare. Welcome back, Andy. Hey, Tim and Jay. Thank you so much for having me back. Uh, 1998. Um, I just wrote that down. Whatever came to my head, I put down on a piece of paper. I put the height of TRL, Dawson's Creek, Loveline, Boy boy Bands, New Metal, and the Family Values Tour. So this will be an interesting uh, look back. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure we're going to all, get all into that. AndyDare.com. That's where people should go to check out your writings and your podcasts. Exactly. And uh, if you're in the Chicagoland area, I've been managing at a record store called Record Utopia in uh, in the western suburbs of Chicago. It's Westmont, Illinois. So check it out. Excellent. Chip Midnight, welcome back. You've been here since we were, when we were looking at uh, rebuilding the website, Jay. Chip Midnight's been here since basically like episode five. <laughs> it's crazy. It was 1999. Yeah. Right? It, 1999. Yeah. <laughs> It was back before the internet. We had a podcast, but we didn't actually. Uh, we just sat in a room and talked about music. That's what the. That's what that was. No, uh, it was yeah, like the uh, triple. I think the triple fast action episode was maybe the first one, or maybe it was the for love not Lisa. One of those two. One of those two. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those were really early, like top, like first ten. So. Uh, yeah. We've had you roped. In Thanks as always for having me. Yes. Yeah. And of course, people can go to kidsinterviewbands.com to uh see what you do what's what's going on there uh chip what's what are the latest uh interviews that people can check out you know this might be a good uh off show discussion with the panelists who have kids who might want to take it over someyday <laughs> all right we, uh, we we might be we might we might be getting towards retirement age is is the best I can say right now is this a we'll Logan's oh, run situation? Where like the, the the jewel lights up and they get uh, shuffled off to uh, 
Has anybody to, seen to Logan's teenage, Run? To teenagehood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I think I think we'll probably be cutting back, probably not doing um, 50 a year. If we do maybe 10 a year, might be what we're going to try to hit for this year. Gotcha. So we'll see. Gotcha. And last but not least, Jim Hankey, welcome back to the hey show. Hey, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us what is new at Vinyl Emergency. Just uh, kicking off an, another what I hope to be a, another fun year of discussions about um, uh, people's connection to vinyl. Uh, first records they remember, uh, record stores they grew up going to, their current connection to vinyl, uh, artwork that kind of blew them away uh, in the past as well as now. Um, we just got done with a uh, in November. We had a great live episode. Uh, in Chicago with Lydia Loveless um, at Pinwheel Records, who's a sponsor of the the show. Um, and we actually worked with Lydia to release the acoustic song she did for the audience there as a uh, charity uh, digital EP. Um, so people can go to Lydia Loveless's Bandcamp page and uh, pick up that EP for three bucks. And uh, all the money goes to Faith Mission Ohio, uh, where they help out women, men, and veterans who need um, assistance with shelter, food, employment assistance, all that sort of stuff. So that's been something that's been really cool lately. Uh, and then coming up, um, I feel there's a lot of interest for people who are like, you know, really into the nitty gritty of vinyl. We've got an interview coming up later this month with uh, a guy who started a, a business here in Milwaukee about cleaning uh, records uh, more efficiently and a little bit more scientifically than you might think. Um, so we kind of get into the nuts and bolts of uh, the real, the real dirt, I guess, on on vinyl, uh, and, and then I'm really happy to welcome, um, uh, believe it or not, Creed Bratton from The Office uh, next month. Nice. Um, he's going to hang out and oh. talk about uh, his uh, yeah, his band. He's touring um, the country starting in a um, couple weeks. Uh, I think he's doing some January dates in the Midwest and then the East Coast. Like uh, um, in in the spring, he's got a new record coming out in April. Um, but he was kind enough to hop on Skype for a little bit and talk about, um, you know, his time with the grassroots. And, uh, I mean, that, I, I would have loved to pick that guy's brain for five hours, but, uh, even to just get the, the 45 minutes or so we had a chance to chat was, uh, was, was really cool. So I'm excited for people to hear that one as well. That should be coming up sometime in February. Awesome. Nice. I was just thinking, is there a low point for vinyl? Like now we're seeing the renaissance of it all. Would you say that 1998 was kind of the low point for the vinyl industry itself? I mean, people were moving on to CDs and getting rid of their vinyl kind of in the mid to late 90s. Is that? Yeah. Would you yeah, agree? I, mean, I, I, think that's, I think that's fair to say. I think certainly you could even go a little bit deeper into like, you know, the early 2000s for sure, because I think we really started to see um, more indie bands kind of go back to vinyl, I'd say, you know, around oh oh four to oh seven like sure. that's a that's a big little stretch there but some of the albums um on on these lists that uh that we are going to talk about tonight um some of those came out on vinyl uh right away but that also has a lot to do with the labels that they're on you know asian man records jade tree uh epitaph you know that sort of stuff but th those guys were uh discord those guys were never um not doing vinyl you know um but certainly from a mainstream standpoint yeah i mean it was um, you know, Pearl Jam puts out Yield that year, and that's a record that Pearl Jam, you know, basically started putting vinyl out, I think with Versus, started putting vinyl out like two weeks before the CDs hit stores, and that was always a big thing. Um, so they were doing that, you know, pretty pretty well, pretty early in their career. Nice. All right, so I want to give our audience 
a basic rundown of what we're going to be covering on this episode. If you've heard our previous episodes on 96 and 97, you're going to have the basic idea. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about our picks for overlooked or ignored albums. These are albums that came out little fanfare when they came out, but over time, you as a listener have decided maybe this was worth checking out, and uh, they've become a little bit more revered in the time since uh, they were first released. And then there are albums that came out that came out to a lot of fanfare and uh, you know a lot of press, and they were considered an amazing album then, and guess what? They're still an amazing album now. Albums that have failed the test of time. They came out, a lot of hype. And then you've picked it up recently and said, hmm, maybe this isn't so good. Maybe this didn't stand the test of time. And then albums that you bought and then went, oh, no, this was a mistake. There's This is terrible. This this record is, is I can't believe I spent $17.99 on this CD. And then uh, last but not least, we'll pick our favorite albums from 1998. We'll pick an album, you know, a couple runners up of each category, and then we'll uh, all of our Patreon folks had had lots of comments to throw in, so as we're going through this, I'll be mentioning folks from our Patreon comments. They did that over at patreon.com forward slash digmeout uh, to share their selections for our various categories. So, Jim, I ended with you, and I'm going to start with you in this section here. Our overlooked and ignored albums. I'm going to start with that. Can okay. you give me one of the albums that you think came out Nobody really paid attention to it, but over time, you uh, you discovered, or and maybe other people have discovered that this is actually a really good record. Gosh, you know this is really tough because I'm trying to remember 1998 and what was little fanfare at at that time. Because um, to be perfectly honest, there's albums uh, that I that I wrote down like uh, in the airplane over the sea from Neutral Milk Hotel, or or end hits from Fugazi. Um, those are albums now where I'm like, you know, and I think a lot of the general public really appreciates and loves, but I don't, I can't say that they were necessarily overlooked or ignored because I don't feel I was in deep with that, that music yet or that fan base, certainly. So I, so, um, for me, I, I want to say, and, and maybe hip hop people, you know, hip hop heads might, um, contradict me, but I would, I would say an album, uh, like black star, uh, the, the, uh, combo of most deaf now, now known as Yasin Bey, and uh, Taleb Kweli. Um, this is an album that has kind of only grown to be more legendary year by year by year. Um, with this being the 20th anniversary, I I hope they do kind of a better vinyl reissue with it. I've seen it in stores; it's still in print, but I, I feel like the uh, the vinyl art is is blown up from CD size. It just doesn't look as sharp as it could. Um, I, I don't know about the music inside, unfortunately, because I haven't picked up this reissue, but. Um, that's an album where you've got two of, you know, two brilliant lyricists, uh, doing a joint album together. Um, and it's still, you know, is, is better than most of, or any that, that followed it. Um, you know, whether that's, you know, watch the throne from Kanye and Jay-Z or, you know, some of these other, um, combination albums between artists, uh, black star has basically always been, um, kind of like an under, somewhat underground kind of uh, classic, and I don't think it certainly got the hype or fanfare it did from you know the general pop music public, of course. But I think in recent years, as as each of these guys has kind of had hits and and been a little bit more popular, I feel that people are kind of still discovering that record. It's um, 
you know, when you go into the bees and hip hop, it's, it's predominantly there in a lot of record stores. And, um, I think that would be one where I would think it came out to not a whole lot of hype, uh, but has gone on to be kind of a a classic of, uh, of the genre. It kind of kicked off like an underground hip hop boom to like late nineties, early two thousands where, there was tons of uh, independent record labels, independent uh, hip hop websites that you could purchase vinyl, purchase CDs. They would be, you know, bonus extras and promos available. It was a good time for hip hop music in general. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember around this time I had first heard um, one of the one of, if not the first, I forget, uh, Company Flow record, which is where LP from uh, Run the Jewels sure. comes from, and and again we're talking that's twenty years on right now. So so look at LP and all the success he's having now with Run the Jewels, but he was you know doing another group twenty years ago putting in work, yeah. putting in work, which which is crazy because you look at LP and he looks like he's you know he's he is he's his mid mid to late thirties, so he's been he's been in the game for a very very long time. So um, yeah, so I'd I'd say Blackstar, and I think you're right. I mean that did can it felt like if that album didn't necessarily uh, jump all that off. It certainly had a hand in it because it was it was very much a I guess what you would call a backpack rap record, right? Like Kanye kind of started off like that, like that you had this like backpack rap where it was like um, kind of um, I hate to say, but the the lyrics were looked at as a little bit more educational, a little bit more dynamic than what was kind of going on in, in pop rap, so to speak. Um, so not it's as just materialistic, a, not as focused on jewelry, yeah. sex, all drugs, Correct. all that stuff. Yeah. Correct. It was, it was very much a history lesson, very much a, um, kind of a back to basics approach. And, uh, if people haven't heard it, um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic record. Interesting. I was not, I was not anticipating that being our first discussion, uh, that album, but that's, that's an interesting one. Andy, what would be your pick? Mine is from a guy that um, he's got some very important parents in the world of music, um, a Beatle and Yoko, Sean Lennon with his Into the Sun album. And uh, it's just kind of a a wasted opportunity for me, at least, because I I feel like he never got to follow this up and uh, actually hit one out of the park. He's been doing a lot of credible stuff throughout the years um, you know, with uh, the guy from Primus, Les Claypool, last year and stuff like that. But it's never really – I felt like this was setting the table for a complete breakthrough, and uh, which never really amounted to anything because uh, it was on Grand Royal Records, which is owned by the Beastie Boys. And I think the label folded a couple years later, and I think that kind of, you know, threw a wrench in the whole in the whole process. But it's an awesome album. Many different genres, many different styles, and total originality too. Cool. All right, I I completely forgot about that record. So, <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. It's kind of romantic too, because it's him with his then girlfriend or wife Yuka Honda from Chibomato. So there's like little romantic things, and then there's just a whole rock, a whole rock vibe going on at the same time. So it's it's definitely worth hunting down. I don't know if that even had a vinyl release or if it's uh, still yet to be reissued too. So I don't know. I have to look that up. Uh, Chip, what would be an album that you would pick for overlooked or ignored at the time it came out? So I made a short list. My first thought was Vanilla Ice, Hard to Swallow, but then I put that one aside. Uh, <laughs> His then, new metal, but for, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. But um, and another one, I mean, for real, something that came out then that I don't know that's overlooked, um, but the first Death Cab for Cutie album came out in 98. But that's actually not my pick. My pick is Snow Patrol's Songs for Polar Bears. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I think I think even if you don't know Snow Patrol well, you know Snow Patrol from like the uh, I don't even know if, truly if they're on a Grey's Anatomy soundtrack, but kind of like that peak in their career when they were writing like the the big Chasing Cars ballads, and and they had like big maybe not arena rock sounds, but big uh, theater rock sounds. Um, Coldplay Light, talk, right? Yes, yeah. But songs for the Polar Bears. I don't know if you guys have heard that. Um, came out I think on a small UK label. Um, and it's it, it's different. It's it's definitely like not polished. I, I keep thinking that I want to compare it to pavement, but it's nothing at all like pavement. But but it's got that like indie rock sound that they definitely grew out of and grew up into the into the um, commercial rock sound. But um, it's actually really good. And that was that was my introduction to the band. And you know I was happy I was happy to see them succeed, even if the music kind of became a little more vanilla sounding. But um, yeah, it's a great album, and I think it's got it's got a bunch of tracks on it. I think it's like, I don't know, like an eighteen or nineteen song album, if I remember correctly. I, you know, I haven't checked it out. I, I think I know the one after that. Uh, is that what, the one that had the single on it, where they broke through? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Go songs up. for polar. Songs for polar bears came out on uh, oh Jeepster, which was when that Bell and Sebastian's label, maybe. I think you're right. And I'm just looking it up. Actually, it it had. 18 songs on the on the US release. But it, it's a it's it's like I said it's it's definitely um it's not the same as you're used to hearing, but it's still it, it sounds like a new band trying to figure out what they want to do. Okay. Jay, what do you got? What do I got? Um I got two. I'll, I'll throw one out quickly um because we discovered it through the podcast Jump Little Children magazine. Mm-hmm. That was a record I hadn't heard of at the time and now Going back, I like quite a bit. The other one I'll spend a little bit more time on is Backyard Baby's Total 13, which was, I think, a pretty inf- influential now that I look back. Um, they were a band that kind of, uh, if you remember Degeneration, to me they delivered on everything that people thought Degeneration was going to be in terms of a like revival of just hardcore, straight-up rock and roll with you know a true punk kind of attitude and a little bit of a kind of a glam return to you know that that kind of feel right um and i think there's a lot of bands that kind of use this as the blueprint for well even up till now i think there's a lot of scandinavian hard rock bands that kind of follow this blueprint i I don't know that they ever made a record this good again so to me it it still stands out as their best record the resale on this is is ridiculously high too i had a cd copy that i sold and hadn't was blown away by how much people were paying for it. Um, really? So this huh. this is one at the time that was like, you know, I think just another record. And now looking back, I think it holds a lot more significance than, than it did at the time. What I wanted to mention that I, I, it's relevant to our show is uh, Super Drags, Head Trip in Every Key, because, you know, there was a lot of, I think, I don't, well, not a lot of, 
they got buzz because of the sucked out single from uh, Regretfully Yours. And um, I kind of feel like after that, the band sort of, you know, they they did the touring and, and stuff, supporting our, uh, you know, either bigger bands or going on small tours on their own. But I don't think they ever garnered the attention of that at the time. And now looking back, I see a lot more people, and it, it's still a, a small group, but there are a lot more people that say, you know, Super Drag, that, that was an amazing band. I think it's one of those cases where, if you describe them as power pop, a lot of times power pop doesn't get appreciated at the moment it's happening. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we need to rediscover Big Star or we need to rediscover, you know, some other band that has that sound a couple years after they've already done it. And then we kind of recognize how good it was. But um, that was one record. And then um, I do want to mention that we, we just reviewed this not too long ago, but the Cardigans Gran Turismo. That was another case where. I feel like, you know, they got a, a single out of Love Fool and the second, uh, or the follow-up record, it's not the second record, but the follow-up record, you know, it has, it has a good single, but my favorite game didn't do what Love Fool did. At least you and I, Jay, uh, really came around on that record in terms of when we picked it apart, we, we really liked what we found. So I think the Gran Turismo record is, is one that's grown a little bit in appreciation because it's a very moody record compared to uh, um, first band on the moon. So I do want to mention a couple folks over at our Patreon page. They brought up some records that I think would fit into this category. Now, uh, Stephen Musinski, he, he mentioned this uh, album. I just mentioned head trip in every key. He also mentioned an album uh, rocket from the crypts, self-titled album, RFTC local H's pack up the cats as well as one album that we reviewed, which I don't think falls in this category because I still don't think it's appreciated, but Minx Get In, Get Out, which we reviewed and, and actually uh, then later had uh, Morgan Taylor on to uh, talk about the Dayton scene. But I feel like all those records kind of fit into the category of maybe they don't get a lot of love, but I feel like uh, Rock From the Crypt has sort of grown in appreciation over the years and... and you know, local H have been plowing through and continue to release records, and and Scott Lucas continues to put out music. So, um, I think some of the '90s stuff has been getting some reevaluating. Um, were there any that you guys want to mention before we move on to the next category as uh, albums that you think have uh, were overlooked but are now uh, appreciated a bit more than when they came out? I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this one because it hasn't been appreciated still in the U.S. But I have a feeling it's be, it's appreciated uh, a ton in Canada. Uh, would be Phantom Power from Tragically Hip, um, my yes. favorite Tragically Hip record. Um, Poets should have been a bigger U.S. hit than it was. Um, the video is is awesome and fun, and obviously with Gord Downey's death, it's easy for all of us to kind of travel down a rabbit hole with Tragically Hip stuff lately. But that that's one where like for sure it was ignored in the U.S. But I think it, it, over time. Um, it's, it's grown. Please. 
And then the other one, I think this one is looked at it kind of as a punk classic these days. But again, I can't remember if it was really um, touted uh, highly when it came out. Uh, that would be The Shape of Punk to Come from Refused. Um, oh, yeah. That, that's a gigantic, gigantic album uh, for the genre. Um, still their best record. And the, the, there's not there's not really much argument there, considering I think they came back recently and, and it just didn't do so well for him. Um, I'll tell you, one of the coolest things about Refused was being being here in Milwaukee. We had relief pitcher John Axford for a time and his debut season with the Brewers. He had put on Twitter that he was having a round robin kind of contest uh, to choose his is basically his walk on music uh, for the next season. And he had ones on there. He had, you know, uh, Rage Against Machine, Bulls on Parade and, you know, Metallica and, you know, just some normal stuff. And then there was um, New Noise from Refused. All my friends and I, you know, voted for that one because that it's like, wow, wouldn't it be crazy to hear Refused at a Major League <laughs> Baseball stadium? Uh, and that one, there was such support from kind of like your indie rock, punk rock baseball fans uh, that it won. So there was an entire season where anytime John Axford came to the came to the mound, that song played and it was just kind of <laughs> crazy to That's hear like, refused like you know the 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 four or five times i get to go to a ball game during the year it's it's crazy so um so like i said i mean i feel i feel weird on this list because i i personally am having trouble remembering 20 years ago uh but i feel like that one has not only every new i think i think punk dads have turned their kids onto that record for sure oh yeah and I do want to mention that your pick of the Tragically Hip, that was uh, Terry McCook over at our Patreon page, picked that as, that's actually her favorite album of the year. Um, and Bob Cajun was her favorite uh, song off that record. Yep. Devastating uh, which, tune, really great, yep. yep. Uh, any other guys, Chip, Andy, any other runners up you want to mention? I'll let Chip go if he uh, wants. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll say um, Sparkle Horse, Good Morning Spider. <laughs> that's um, on my list, nice. <laughs> yeah. Good job. As an overlooked one? Yeah. I mean, I think it met with, with critical fanfare when it came out, but I don't know that there were any big singles off it or anything. Um, it was put out on a major label, but but it was right after kind of Mark had gone through the overdose that led to him being in a wheelchair. Um, so it wasn't, I don't know that it was necessarily a, a good album that the label could sell commercially. But and I that was feel on like, a major well, label, too, Capital. Yeah. Um, that could never it, happen in 20, 2018. <laughs> no. It's kind of funny. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page right now about the album, and um, they actually quote an interview that I did with Mark, so that's kind of cool. Um, oh, nice. <laughs> I actually love the song Happy Man, and um, I remember talking to him about that, and, and he said, um, like I said, they quoted from my interview, Happy Man kind of sounds like everything on the radio, and who needs that? So, um, <laughs> oh, oh, that's the one. I don't know if you guys remember that song. That's the one that kind of starts off staticky. Like it kind of sounds almost like you're you're driving through a tunnel. Like you can hear bits and pieces of the song, but it kind of sounds like you're changing the dial to try to get it just perfectly on, on the radio. And and I think I told him at the time that I thought that could have been a great single had he not messed it up at the beginning and making it sound like you were fading in and out. And that, that and that's what he said. He said, you know, it's who wants a, who wants a radio single? But that was kind of intentional. So very cool, Andy. You have uh, one or two. How about uh, it's kind of like the last gasp of uh, Britpop Nate, or Fever in 1998, Pulp with This Is Hardcore. Um, got no press in America, no no plays in America really, but it's such a stacked album with 
you know, some of Jarvis Cocker's best writing to date and the band sounds amazing. The production sounds amazing. Um, it's another sad thing of where they never really followed that one up. They had We Love Life after that, but it kind of wasn't quite on the same level. So I think Pulp This Is Hardcore might be that band's uh, apex. Yeah, I remember that. That was really disappointing how I think I saw the video like once on like 120 minutes <laughs> and that was it. Like they it got no push here in the US. I mean, I understand it's like it's a hard record to push a US single in 1998, but man, it's a good record. But yeah, it's that's that's a good one. Well, let's move on to our next category, and that's going to be albums that have stood the test of time. This is this is a an album that came out you knew it was coming out probably beforehand. You might have even lined up at a midnight sale to buy it. I don't know. It might have been might have been a huge record. And uh, critical acclaim when it came out, and you listen to it now and you think, "Yep, this is a good record." I'm glad. I'm glad I went out and got this record, or uh, stood in line, or whatever you did to uh, to pick it up. So, Andy, I'll start with you. What was a record that uh, you listened to recently, and you said, "Yep, this definitely stood the test of time." Well, this one had a ton of fanfare because it followed up a, you know, diamond selling double album. And uh, at the time, Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune um, said it was kind of commercial suicide. It would be as if Springsteen followed up Born in the USA with Nebraska instead of vice versa. And that's Smashing Pumpkins with Adore. This one has totally grown on me. Um, recently picked up, or a year or so ago, I picked up the deluxe box, which uh, features all the outtakes and whatnot about it. It's just such a dark, creepy record, but there's so many textures going on. There's so many things at play um, on a door. And uh, if you want to check uh, check out the outtakes, one of the actually interesting ones is Puff Daddy's remix of Ava Adore. And it was uh, meant to be for the Godzilla soundtrack. It never materialized, but it's actually a pretty good uh, remix of the song. You'd be surprised. So pretty interesting era for the pumpkins in general, too. Yeah. And also the live DVD, it shows a band at such a crossroads because you don't have Jimmy Chamberlain. You have Kenny Aronoff of Mellencamp's band, and he's... He's playing drums, and then you have uh, two keyboard players, Mike Garson of David Bowie fame, and then you even have a uh, percussionist. And Billy has gone to say that this was their Grateful Dead era, where they had two percussionists, a huge big band. But you can you can look in the eyes of Darcy and James Eha, and you just you feel like there's not a whole lot of love going around the band at the time, yeah, but it's, yeah. st- but it still makes for a rewarding album though, which is, which is very cool. Jim, what's your pick for album that has stood the test of time? Well, I, I want to piggyback on that a little bit because I, I still appreciate a lot of Adore, but I actually had it on my list of ones that have, have not stood the test of time. And that's just only <laughs> based, that's just only based on kind of like, you know, mainstream radio rocks reaction to that record. And if you were to, you know, kind of categorize everybody's top 10 Smashing Pumpkin songs, I don't think even the singles from Adore would, would necessarily be on it. Um, that's not trashing the album at all because I actually quite like it. Um, especially the, the repress that they did of it. Um, so I just, I thought that was funny that, um, that Andy had it on his, uh, stood the test of time. And I was thinking about putting it on my failed one. Um, I, I, I have, this is Chip. I ha- I have it on my failed as well for the same reason. So. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> interesting. It's their Depeche Mode album, right? It is. Yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. I was going to laugh actually about that line about it being their Grateful Dead phase is like, wow, like the, the most like soulless and robotic that pumpkins kind of like sounded during their time. And I, and, and again, that's just like the, the songs themselves and the, the production value and stuff. It's funny to think about like a Grateful Dead type band playing that <laughs> stuff because they were I, I remember like Hum opened that tour and I remember like. Just them, you know, I saw Pumpkins at Summerfest that year and they're just like, you know, Billy's got like the big black cloak on and everything was just like, yeah, this is like not music to listen to drinking beer and, you know, (laughs) 80 degree heat. He's at his most Jack Skellington look. Yes. Oh, absolutely. He weighs like 140 pounds soaking wet at this point, I think. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Right. Um, You know, there are there are a couple that um, that I had listed here uh, and I'm trying to. You know, I'll probably go with, I think critically, like across the board, uh, the miseducation of Lauren Hill is mm-hmm. one that still uh, critics, uh, music fans in general, it's a record where there there was no proper follow up to it. It's just kind of like this flash in the pan isn't the right word because she obviously had such a career with the, the Fugees before. But um, this is just one of those records where an artist makes it. It's incredible. It wins a bunch of awards. It sells a bunch of copies. And then there there is no discussion after it because nothing <laughs> truly happened. It, it's more it's more so like you're waiting for that next thing. Everybody's kind of waiting for Lauren Hill to kind of reclaim her place as, you know, a, a great voice and a great writer and everything like that. But the I mean the the I guess what would be the ninety nine Grammys probably. I mean she swept them from what I can remember, or at least won quite a few awards. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great record. It, it, it might not have aged incredibly well. Um, but there's so much timelessness on it that that's, that's what it, what helps it play so well in 2018. I wonder um, if, if Columbia still asks her year after year, are, is the follow-up ready yet this year? Is it coming yeah, out? Like, I wonder right. if they're still waiting for it somewhere. I know it. I know it. I know it. But I mean, that was, that was just a, that was a massive record in this list of like six or seven records I had listed. It was the most massive. It was the most critically loved. It was the most, um, loved by an audience. Um, so that, that, that's the one I wanted to mention because I, I think we can't have a discussion about 1998 without bringing up the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Well, you're not alone. Davey Bright over on our Patreon page, he mentioned, uh, Lauren Hill. He also mentioned a few other ones. I don't want to say them yet cause I want Chip to go. I'll bring them up in a, in a minute or two. Chip, what is your pick for a uh, album that stood the test of time? Yep. Love them or hate them. And they may be partially responsible for a lot of really bad music to follow, but I think Korn's Follow the Leader has stood the test of time. I mean, that's the one that really kind of kind of blew them up, um, had some huge singles on it, and like I said, love them or hate them, like I still go back, and I was definitely not a new metal guy, but there's something about some of those songs, Freak on a Leash and a couple of the other ones on that album that, that, that I really like and I still listen to today. Interesting. I was not expecting that from you. I thought... Uh, yeah. I- well, just because in our previous discussions, you you tended to move away from like the heavier music, so I was thinking you were going to go with something uh, a bit on like the more alternative end. But that's an interesting pick. I don't know that corn would have been brought up otherwise. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I think you're right. I mean, it definitely. I don't think it it. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it is probably something that even I'd expect myself to say. But as I looked over all the things that came out in, in that genre of music, I think that one is, is one of the top three new metal albums 
and one of the top three that I can stand to listen to. Gotcha. Jay, what do you think? Still the test of time. I'm going to go with uh, Afghan Wigs 1965. For me, it's a a part of a trilogy, Gentleman, Black Love, and this record that, to me, encompass the band best. And this is the one where they they extend themselves the most. It's got a lot of guest musicians. It really absorbs itself in the New Orleans culture and music. And I, I think it holds up really well. The performances are good. The production's great. I think it extends the band sound enough that it's still them without sort of uh, becoming something different. It's your phone number, baby. I call you sometime. I think I might be out tonight. Maybe give you a ride. Cocktails for two. Time lovers, man. Yeah, I mean, it's still one that when it comes on, I'll always stick with and listen to, so... Well, I've already lost two of my picks with uh, two of my favorite bands, the Afghan Wigs and uh, Tragically Hip. So uh, one that I do want to mention is uh, Massive Attack's Mezzanine. I feel like, uh, you know, in the 97, 98, that was the electronica trip hop, like heyday of that time. And I remember when Mezzanine came out, it just there was we played it constantly at the radio station. There was, uh, you know, remixed 12 inch singles that people were getting their hands on at the radio station that were getting played at parties and stuff like that. And um, there was just that brief moment where uh, bands like Massive Attack and Portis Head and some others were actually getting played on, crazily enough, were getting played on some mainstream radio. And this is an album that I, I probably still listen to this record a couple times a year and, and just the entire uh, 90s output of Massive Attack, whether it's this or the previous records. Um, just an amazing record looking, listening back to it. I didn't really think about it at the time, um, as being maybe, or maybe I didn't because of what the band decided to do, but I think Pearl Jam's yield has actually stood the test of time. I know that they were attempting with, uh, Vitology and No Code to sort of lower their profile, but any Pearl Jam release was a big deal in the nineties. And, um, I've recently gotten back to it and, and listened to the record and, it's kind of the last Pearl Jam record that I think I've really loved all the way through. Um, when you get into binaural and then some of the stuff in the 2000s, that I sort of start losing interest with those records and become more of a couple songs on the record that I like rather than the whole thing. But yeah, that Massive Attack and Pearl Jam would be my my picks. Any uh, other stood the test of time picks that you guys got to mention? Oh, I, I got to, before that, Davey Bright. He said, at the drive-ins, in Casino Out. Beastie Boys, Hello Nasty, Pete Rock's Soul Survivor, Chamberlain, The Moon, My Saddle, I'm not familiar with that record, and Botch's American Nervoso were his standouts for 1998. So, guys, what were any other stood the test of times for you? I mean, I would go to bat for the Beastie Boys, Hello Nasty, for sure. That was on a short list that I was thinking of mentioning. Um, Another one that I think 
uh, people should revisit would be uh, the last dog and pony show from Bob Mold. Um, that was mm. at a time that was at a time where Bob Mold was going to ditch uh, rock music, more specifically electric guitar, and get uh, heavy into dance music, which it seems crazy, you know, crazy now considering the success that he's had with like these last couple records on Merge and this this really powerful band of uh, Jason Narducci and uh, John Worcester from Super Chunk uh, backing him up. So the last dog and pony show came out and obviously titled that because it was kind of like a, a salute to, you know, this is going to be the last uh, Bob mold record that where you're going to get, you know, what you expect from Bob mold. Um, but that, that's a, a fantastic record. I actually, I, <laughs> I'm a little bummed. I picked it up in England a couple of years ago on vinyl at the time I was uh, very psyched to get an original copy of another 1998 album uh, from somebody here in Milwaukee and we did a trade and then that 1998 album got repressed like within a couple months. So I'm out of this original last dog and pony show copy. Uh, so it's on my discogs list, uh, you know, waiting for another time where I can pick it up. But, uh, <laughs> but, but that would be one that that's, if, if people have been following Bob mold for the last couple of years, uh, the last dog and pony show is a great one to go revisit. Hey, they just did a stand in Chicago or in Evanston um, for like mm-hmm. the New Year's Eve. Were you there? Or? No, no, I couldn't. I couldn't go. But that was yeah, that was badass. I, I wish I could have gone to that. But they were doing yeah, two or three shows over a couple nights. And that's a great room space in Evanston, Illinois. If people get a chance. Um, really fantastic. I've seen loud rock shows there. I've seen quiet acoustic shows there. Um, really, really great environment and uh, and sound and everything. Agreed. This one probably falls more under the overlooked and then appreciated later. But the first Queens of the Stone Age record comes out in 98. Oh, yeah. And boy, maybe maybe it's just my disappointment in the newest record. But, you know, going back and revisiting that, I mean, there's the band, you know, that the, the sound they defined on that first record, they pretty much carried forward and really has always been unique. And um, I think the stuff on that is just as good as now as it was then. Yeah. Any other picks for Stood the Test of Time, Andy or Chip? And to piggyback would, on would... the mezzanine uh, thing, how about Madonna's Ray of Light? Uh, say what you will about Madonna, but I thought that was a totally cool reinvention with William Orbit behind the boards, and uh, every song is like a mini soundtrack. There's so much work put into each each uh, thing. It sounds great, and it's pretty much influenced by Bjork at times like that, so it yeah. was kind of cool to see Madonna reinventing herself. I believe she was in her 40s at the time, so... So that's a cool album that stood the test of time. Yeah, I agree. I'm yeah, revisiting, and and that's the last record I think of hers that I really like it all the way through. So Chip, what were you gonna say? And I would I would throw another I would throw another vote um, towards Hello Nasty. That was uh, it came out on my birthday, and it came out two days after I got married, and my wife and I were on our honeymoon in San Francisco, and I bought it um, actually at Amoeba Records, which was my first visit to Amoeba Records. So it was like kind of this ideal perfect storm for that for me to buy an album by a band I liked at a store that's amazing after just getting married. And um, yeah, so that one has stood the test of time. How that's cool great. was the packaging of that thing when you first opened it? It was just so cool looking too. Was... Yeah. I just picked up um, To the Five Burrows, that, the reissue they did of that this weekend. So glad to have that finally because that's a really great record too. And I don't know, I was, um, I, I don't know, were, were any of you guys college journalist in the 90s or journalist in the 90s yep yeah so High i mean school. I, I mean we, we i was used to calling i mean you know the name hello nasty comes from when you called their publicist nasty little man yeah and i was writing i was writing for a zine at the time and i mean 
I totally understood that as soon as I saw the title. It's like, oh yeah, that's that's the way to answer the phone, Sarah. So you know, it was <laughs> totally. a little bit of, a little bit of an inside joke, but you know, no, that, that was super yeah. cool. That was super cool. Yeah. Did anybody go to the tour for that one with uh, Tribe Called Quest? Uh, pretty much their last tour, and uh, with Money Mark, Kid Koala. And a revolving stage that had a basketball hoop in the middle for the Beastie Boys. It was, <laughs> it was friggin' amazing. That's awesome. I missed that, but that that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. On the flip side, there are albums that have stood the test of time, and then there are albums that have failed the test of time. This is going to be a little more painful. This is going to be albums that they came out. There's a lot of buzz. There's a lot of fanfare. It might have been a big band releasing a record. And uh, you might have at the time convinced yourself, hey, this is a good record. I like this. But now you listen to it and you go, oof, this is not a good record. I don't, I'm, I'm, I've changed my mind. I will give an example to start this up because this is near and dear to my heart. It's the Goo Goo Dolls, Dizzy Up the Girl. I'm from Buffalo. They're my band. <laughs> and uh, really, really like Hold Me Up, really like Superstar Car Wash. Boy Named Goo, still really solid record. I remember when this record, when Dizzy Up the Girl, Dizzy Up the Girl came out. Slide was the big single, and uh, I was like, okay, that's that's in the ballpark. And then they played like Black Balloon and uh, Broadway, and these songs, and I was okay. I'm, I guess I'm on board. I mean, they're they're still kind of rocking, sort of, um, not the way I want them to, but. I now realize, looking back, that this is where I basically abandoned the, <laughs> the band and stopped listening. Uh, because I got that record. I think I pretty much bought it the day it came out. Um, I was in Buffalo at the time when it came out. So I went to a Buffalo record store, like a real hometown fan, and, and bought it. And uh, yeah, now, I, now I, I, can, I can't stand actually listening to that record. So, Chip... What's a record you bought in 1998 that you really liked back then, but now not so much? That is a hard question for me to answer. Um, the couple that I was thinking of, um, and, th- it, and as you guys know from a previous appearance, I did not buy it in 1998. <laughs> um, but I think that Van Halen, Van Halen 3 record is something that's uh, not um, one of the best Van Halen records. I'll tell you one. So I don't know if this, is, this failed per se, but I... Again, I think I might surprise you by saying this, but um, I kind of like that Everlast record that came out, his first solo album after after House of Pain. It got way overplayed, and I actually I was debating on whether it was failed test of time or purchased and quickly discarded. Uh, it, it falls into both those categories for me. Like I, I liked it. It was um, you know coming out of House of Pain, it was something a little bit different. But yeah, that's something I haven't gone back to listen to, and I don't think it's stood the test of time if it ever if it ever did stand the test time. Well, it definitely had a lot of singles, I believe, when it came out, or at least had one huge single. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Jim, what, what has Yo. failed the test of time for you? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I, I, this this short list that I had, it, it, it's kind of like either um, big follow-ups for bands that got popular, that, you know, that really exploded like two or three years before that, mm-hmm. um, that would be, uh, records like Americana from the offspring and supposed former infatuation junkie from Alanis <laughs> Morissette. Um, sure. those are record. Those are just big, like not flops because offspring God, you'll still hear some of those terrible offspring singles from that record on, you know, modern rock radio today, but you really won't hear much from that Alanis record aside from maybe thank you and 
I mean, maybe one other one. Um, another uninvited. Like, uninvited, right? Yep. Um, I blame yeah. that really long album title. That was yeah, not, not a good pick. That was a. This was a year for really long album titles because we also have Liz Fair's um, White Chocolate Space Egg. <laughs> sure. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of just like nouns and and adverbs and stuff in in album titles. <laughs> um, but but from the genre stuff, like I wrote down. Um, uh, you know, swing was really big around this time too. So I think now if you put on, uh, some, some swing records from 1998, which would be like Americana deluxe from big bad voodoo daddy and perennial favorites from squirrel nut zippers. I don't think people would be super into those records the way they were 20 years ago. But the, the, the one I'm um, specifying is also kind of genre related, kind of what was happening at that time. You had, you know, bands going back to swing and then you had bands looking towards the future with electronics uh, or electronica or whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I put down You've Come a Long Way, Baby from Fatboy Slim. Reason being is that this record was huge, obviously. Um, Rockefeller skank and and uh, and it seemed to like soundtrack every movie trailer for a mm-hmm. while. And, and it was kind of leading the charge um, along with, um, I'd say, you know, Moby, uh, Crystal Method chemical brothers who i feel have all aged a little bit their that music from that era has aged a little bit better um you know taking a quick listen through you've come a long way baby maybe it's just my adverseness to a lot of electronic music like i really like the chemical brothers the the, the, the big chemical brothers record but this one just I, I feel like i'm i feel like i'm listening to commercials basically and i think that's yep. you know and i think that's quite a bit uh akin to what that album kind of like was when it came out. It was very, very popular and, and, and probably got licensed all over the place. So I can't really listen to it in a, in a true artistic sense. It, it just sounds like a bunch of like, I don't know. It's just, it's just filler to me now. So. All right. Here's one I have that um, I honestly was never a big fan of this band. Um, and so I'm interested in seeing what you guys think about it. Um, but what about REM's up album? interesting you I bring like that it. up that's an yeah. interesting one yeah yep I, I will say i will say i'm a gigantic rem fan but i did have it on this list uh and and the reason being is that i actually aside from this podcast revisited it um just over spotify like two or three weeks ago and i was surprised how much of it did not connect with me um whereas yeah. i where, whereas i would be at a party and i would tell people oh no up's a, up's a great album <laughs> and then i and then i actually went back and listened to it i'm like oh this makes a really strong ep um, yeah, there's just, a, it's just a lot of droning on that album. And, and I'm not against droning necessarily, but like for REM, they're not the band to do that. Like that's, it, it was kind of the year of Nigel Godrich. Cause you had him coming hot off of okay computer. And then he went and did up by REM and did mutations by Beck. Yeah. And both of those were kind of not as big as their previous albums. Yeah. Those acts.
But I mean, Day Sleeper, great song. Love that. There's a couple other really good songs on that record, but overall it makes a really strong half album or EP. So You feel the absence of Bill Berry a little bit. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, did they ever recover? I mean, honestly, I mean, there's some good songs on the stuff. Accelerate? That yeah. Yeah. Not really. I mean, I'm with, yeah, me, me, I think New Adventures in Hi-Fi is the last great R.E.M. record. Yeah. Um, and I, and I mean, and I'm, and I mean that other albums are good, you know, not slagging all of them, but I think the last really great one for me is new adventures. Okay. Andy, did I call on you? I've just got a couple here. Um, this guy was, this guy was major hyped by Matt Pinfield and a couple other people. Um, it was supposed to be like a, uh, rockabilly meets beats and production like that and i was thinking beck i was expecting the next beck to come along it was johnny ray anybody familiar with are you johnny ray <laughs> song no yep yeah no, it's i remember it's a, that it's a 98 turd go check it out i bought the <laughs> album i, I, th- I think I, I think i paid 18.99 for the compact disc and i put it on once and i was just so unimpressed but uh well that'd be our next also... category that would be the instantly regretted category this is more oh, instantly... this is more okay. you bought it at the time you thought eh, this isn't bad and then now you were like yeah this is not good how about Rob Zombie's Hellbilly Deluxe? That was also built up huge, and I mean it sold huge. Yeah. It was all over radio. Um, we were expecting him to finally come out of the shadows of White Zombie and really present himself. Turns out it's just the same stuff he was doing with White Zombie. It really was not a step forward. It was kind of a lateral move. I mean, it was it was okay, but it's not something that really presents a ton of replay value, at least to these ears. Is that the is it Dragula was the single off that record? Yeah. Living Dead Girl was big as well. Yeah. So it had a couple of hits, but uh yeah, not a lot of replay replay value. Yeah. And uh one more quickly. Um great band, great uh singer, great producer. And I loved it at the time, but I recently revisited it and it 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 felt like a Pro Tools uh, class to me, Garbage's version 2.0, and uh, it's it's got good songs. And it came out. I loved it when it came out, but I don't know the sounds on there. Just reek of April 1998, and uh, that's not such a great thing. Actually, it turns out. Yeah, Jay, any of your picks for uh, not aged well? Uh, I'll go back and visit our our Kiss roundtable and say Psycho Circus <laughs> yeah. came out this year. Uh, I'm just looking at your criteria here. A lot, a lot of fanfare. Yeah, that record had a ton of fanfare, and mm-hmm. was one I think for those of us who are have this this the Kiss sickness gave it every chance in the world, and at some point realized that they had cheated us once again. So <laughs> that's one. It's definitely not stood the test of time to me. Um, one that I want to throw out there that uh, I I really liked it at the time. It had a bunch of big singles. And it was coming off of two really good records, and that's Lenny Kravitz's album Five. Um, I I really liked Circus, the previous record with Rock and Roll Is Dead, and Are You Gonna Go My Way. I I liked, you know that that record. And um, I remember when Five came out, and I think Fly Away was the first single, and I was like, oh, this is this is cool. I mean, this is a good pop single, and there were some other interesting things on that record, but. I think it got just over, especially Fly Away with the terrible rhyming that goes on in that song. It got to me after a while, after hearing it on the radio 500 <laughs> times. 
and uh, <laughs> it's pretty much soured me on ever listening to Lenny Kravitz again. I mean, I'll, I'll occasionally if if like one of the circus songs is on because those are it's a bit of a darker record, so I I think that's why I like it. But yeah, I I convinced myself for a long time that that was a really good record, and now I I cannot listen to it anymore. Also, want to mention a record, and this might be d- debatable or not. You guys can. Uh, decide holes celebrity skin huge record when it came out i love it i i don't think it stands up but tell me why you love it it's just corny loves coming out party as a true talent i i I feel like without kurt she had to really show herself um admittedly she got billy corgan and jordan as zadarazny and a couple other people to write for her but it just sounds like this is her apex celebrity skin that track malibu a couple of the other ones well they sound great i think there's two good songs on that record i like awful Mm. all right (laughs) i have a post note too it's not john (laughs) it's not johnny ray excuse me it's jimmy ray jimmy ray yeah i I feel bad i don't want to lead you guys wrong oh okay johnny is johnny ray uh from come on eileen that might be it yeah (laughs) <laughs> from the lyrics of come on eileen yeah nice all right and then you sort of uh dabbled in this a little bit but purchases that you made at the time in 1998 you went to the record store you picked out your cd or possibly a vinyl record but most likely a cd and then you you took it home you popped it in and you went oh no i, I just spent 17.99 on a pile of garbage it might be the van halen three record there's a good chance that it was that. Jay, I'm going to start with you this time. Tell me a record that you instantly <laughs> regretted in 1998. Uh, you just named it, Van Halen 3. I mean, even the, I think the Kiss record, I gave, it took a little more time, but I think because the Van Halen record was so hard to even get into in the first place, right. it was difficult to even convince myself that it was okay. At the time. Yep, yep. <laughs> Andy, what was your pick? For, you you picked Jimmy well, Ray, I, but what what I've else? I've got another. Got? I've got another one that's terrible, and this band is so good, which makes it even more of a heartbreak. The Jimmy Ray thing was neither here or there for me, but uh, this was a great band. Started off punk, got a little bit more mainstream, got huge, and then followed it up with this Soul Asylum with yeah. Candy from a Stranger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is an awful <laughs> record. Yep. It was hard for me to even come together with the whole fact that they actually released this thing. Uh, I mean, they're very pleasant songs. They're pleasant. But I would prefer, like, a actually really terrible thing or a really great thing. Instead, it was just mediocre pleasantries. So it was mm-hmm. really uh, not a good listen for Summer 98. You are correct, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, what's your pick for an instant regret in 1998? Yeah, that was that was on my list for sure. And I, I think it's like a, a year of like bands who, you know, with bigger successes previously, it's like a lot of follow ups or second follow ups that that just didn't work. I, I wrote down Gentleman's Blues from Cracker, uh, Liz Fair, White Chocolate Space Egg, No Substance from Bad Religion. I, I, I wrote down Candy from a Stranger from Soul Asylum. Uh, mine is uh, How Does Your Garden Grow by Better Than Ezra. That's one where. I think a lot of people forget how good Friction Baby, at least the single of King of New Orleans is. I, I will go to bat for that song as like, mm-hmm. man, like that that should have been 
their next leg of like being a really, really good band. Um, it's, it's kind of a forgotten alt rock single from that era. Uh, but then they followed up with how does your garden grow, which even the, the cover looks really kind of digitally and like, they're kind of, you know, they weren't going electronic necessarily, but they were experimenting in that and trying to be a little bit more highbrow and it just did not come across well at all. Um, and I, I just want to say, as far as Van Halen 3 goes, I, I just Googled the, the image art because I couldn't recall what that cover <laughs> was. And dear Lord, does this look like the worst? Like, this looks like, the you know, a bar band on a Saturday night. This is their $5 CD they have. There's a cannonball involved, right? In a fat yeah. guy? Well, it's that old, it's that old, like, uh, I want to say Zapruder, but that's not right. It's, <laughs> it's that old, like, footage of, like, there's a guy, you know, older guy from maybe the 50s or whatever, like, taking a cannonball to the chest. It's, you know, and they played, they made a play on that when Homer was doing the big Hullabalooza episode with a lot of the bands we're talking about, uh, Smashing Pumpkins and Sonic Youth was in that, on that episode and whatever. But so for people who haven't seen the Van Halen 3 cover, it's that, but the, on the side of the cannon, very poorly photoshopped, it says Van Halen 3. And this just <laughs> seriously looks like a clip art like album cover. It just looks terrible. So I don't know. I just had to piggyback on that and say <laughs> how awful that looks. Yep. Yeah, it's awful. Chip. Yes. Right. In- instant regret. This time. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run through a couple really fast. Um and I had this in between either fail test or purchase at the time was um, somebody mentioned earlier, the fat boy slim record, you know, I bought it because of the singles and then didn't listen to anything but the singles and wondered why I spent the money on it. So some of these are ones that like I bought at the time I quickly got rid of and I haven't gone back to listen to. So they might have actually stood the test of time if I go back and listen to them now, but um, James Eha's first solo record coming out of the smashing pumpkins. I was expecting something that I did not get the Scott Weiland record. Again, I listened to it once or twice and have not come back to listen to it. I was really excited about the black Sabbath reunion album. I think that was a live album, but by the, you know, by 1998, it was a 1998 sounding black Sabbath record, which I didn't love. And, uh, and the Marilyn Manson record, um, was that mechanical animals? Yeah. Forgot about that. Like maybe, maybe a single that I saw on, on MTV that I sort of liked, but didn't do anything for me. I feel like the whole album and the Marilyn Manson album worked well together, and I believe they might have toured together for them. Like they both were kind of like their take on the trashy, like Malibu, Southern California sound or something. So I, yeah. I find those two redeeming for that quality. I, I struggle with that Marilyn Manson record because I think musically it's really interesting, but I think lyrically it doesn't hold up very well. It's just some of the lyrics yeah. on there are just so like I don't know. So I've got an I've got an interesting one to throw out, okay. um, and this is this is one that I don't re- this is one that I don't regret and I didn't get rid of. But I'm gonna guess that maybe you guys didn't even bother with this one, or but some of the listeners may have bought this because of the single and, and regretted it. Was that new Radicals record? Oh right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think if you listen to the whole record I, to this day, I, I debated on putting it on my stood the test of time. Cause it's a really good pop record. There's some really good songs. It was the victim of the, the catchy one hit wonder success. Um, and I think the guy, Greg Alexander that wrote it, that was the one and only new radicals album. He stopped putting out his own stuff. He writes for a bunch of people. Um, I, I enjoy that record, but I know that that one ends up in a lot of used bins. I have never heard that record all the way through. 
It seems like one we should uh, do a review of. There's a yeah, good it's a great album. Yeah. We're going to get to that this year. At least we're going to put it up for a Patreon vote at some point. One record I wanted to mention that had, a, I, I think, a decent amount of hype, and I went out and bought it when it came out, and um, I shouldn't have. I should have trusted my gut because I knew it was not going to recapture what I was hoping, and that is Walking Into Clarksdale, the Jimmy Page and Robert Plant album. Yeah. I really like the Unleaded tour and the uh, even the Unleaded album that they put out. But man, this record is a dud. Steve Albini produced it. I don't know what it is. It just does not work. Maybe the songs aren't there. But no songs. They had no songs for this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, I think that's. I think that's basically what it comes down to. There's just. There's just not the songs. So that's the. That's one I'd throw out there. So let's get to our the, the most important category, which is going to be. And you know, we've talked about the albums that have stood the test of time. Things that we've that were overlooked, and you've discovered them in maybe later or or rediscover them if you're gonna pick an album as your favorite you got you got one shot jim i'll go with you what is your pick for your favorite album of 1998 god i mean guys there's a lot and there's a lot that has been named already uh tonight i mean i I, yeah shout out to head trip in every key for sure great record one we haven't talked about uh would be uh elliot smith's xo i think that would be a really you know a, a good candidate so many more I'm picking uh, Mermaid Avenue from Billy Bragg and Wilco. Yeah. Um, this is a incredibly unique project. It, it kind of, I, th- I think this record turned me on to Billy Bragg. I knew who he was, but I didn't really get the breadth of his career or what he brought to the table. And I've been a kind of a diehard Billy Bragg fan ever since. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Nora Guthrie, Woody Guthrie, one of Woody Guthrie's daughters had approached Wilco and Billy Bragg. Um, with a stockpile of lyrics from from him uh, that had never been recorded, uh, no music had been written for them, what have you, and Billy Bragg and Wilco made what ended up being a trio of records uh, of of putting these lyrics to to music. Um, and uh, the first one is the best one, um, like a lot of like a lot of trilogies and 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 things of that nature. But um, Natalie Merchant doesn't get enough praise for her contributions to the series. She's on a couple songs. Um, it's really, really an incredible package done with love uh, from from every angle. Wilco still continues to play, as I'm sure Billy Bragg does, some of these songs uh, in concert. So uh, they have a, a life. Um, and I think if you ask a lot of Wilco fans, this this series, or at least the, the first of Mermaid Avenue, uh, might even be better than some Billy Bragg uh, and or Wilco records uh, in their own catalog. So so that would be that would be my vote for if I had to pick an absolute favorite, it would be that one. I consider California Stars one of Wilco's greatest songs bar none so that's that's a great album oh yeah yeah absolutely and in california i mean that's one they i bet is in the set list most every night it's it's great and um i think just recently they were at i think this past year they were at a folk fest uh playing separate stages and and got together with billy and did it again oh nice um so so that's great because I, if there's um i watched a, a little bit thing on billy bragg uh and it didn't seem as if they completely saw eye to eye throughout the entire project. I think they respect each other and they they're happy with the work that did get done. But it sounded like it was a little bit more adversarial at, at certain points because Billy wanted to speak for the people like Woody was like his guy. 
And I think Jeff Tweedy was at a point where he was like, yeah, like, let's just write, you know, let's just put songs together. And I'm paraphrasing. This is probably, don't hold me to this, but I got the vibe from something I watched that um, it wasn't completely hunky-dory, but it came out enough where they, you know, were both really happy with it. And now it seems completely like they, like I said, they, they, they hopped on stage and did California Stars all together. And I think maybe one or two other songs recently. And uh, it seemed to go off perfectly well. So, um, you know, I don't think we'll get another collaboration from those guys, but uh, it's good to know that, uh, you know, whatever was irking them is kind of water under the bridge because it's a fantastic record and a, and a really good set of records. What's your pick? Favorite album in 1998? Well, we've already talked about it, so I'll pick something else. My number one was Beastie Boys' Hello Nasty, but uh, uh, how about this one? Uh, this guy finally signs to a major label after you know five or six years working with uh, Kill Rock Stars. Um, has a hit off the Goodwill... The, the Goodwill... What is it called? The Good... Goodwill Hunt, Hunting? Goodwill good, Hunting? Goodwill Hunting. Excuse me. It just wasn't coming to my brain here. Goodwill Hunting. He gets a hit off that soundtrack. He uh, is at the Oscars. He has to take a bow while holding hands with Celine Dion, which he never thought that would ever happen. Releases his masterpiece, XO, on DreamWorks. And it's that awesome thing of when an artist goes to the major label route and really doesn't change that much about his sound. Sure, he uh, hooked up with the guys who made uh, Beck's Loser, so they added a lot of instrumentation and production stuff, but it really didn't change the overall effect. He's still one of the greatest uh, songwriters of the 90s in my eyes. That's Elliot Smith and XO. Yeah, that is a phenomenal record. Great pick. Chip, your pick for 1998. So I think I've talked to you guys about this either on air or off air, but um, a, a band that probably not many people are familiar with called Crumb, and their album is called Seconds, Minutes, Hours. Um, I would say it's kind of, jeez. Uh, um, I think it might, I might be able to describe it better by telling you who the guests were on it, and you guys might remember me talking about this. Um, uh, Blair from Knapsack sang on some of uh, sang backing vocals. Um, Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, the women from That Dog, um, and then Bo Hill, the famous Bo Hill rock arena rock producer, produced this record. And because of his connection, they got Janie Lane from Warrant to sing backing vocals on a couple songs. But it's very much I would I would put it in that Jimmy World kind of post emo alternative rock category. It's a great record full of great guest star that came out on a small label called red ant i think after this record they broke up it had major distribution I you, though I, I believe i i would see that quite a bit in bins and stuff like that right? yeah i don't know if you guys remember there's a band called i want to say gratitude uh that was started a couple years later with um jonah from far who was my second choice for this 
Jonah was a singer and one of the guys from Crumb was in that band and it was actually supposed to be the singer from Crumb and that didn't work out and they got Jonah from Far to sing in it, but that's going down a rabbit hole. But yeah, Crumb's <laughs> um, Seconds, Minutes, Hours. You can I'm, I haven't looked, but I'm guessing you can find it on, on Amazon for like one of those like penny CDs <laughs> that you pay $4 for shipping, but... Right, exactly. Cool. But the fact that this band is like, this post-emo band has Janie Lane singing backing vocals was just like... I already loved the record to begin with, and then and then adding that just made it perfect. I need to check this out. Definitely, yeah, it's fascinating. Jay, your pick album for nineteen ninety eight. Um, so we haven't talked about this record yet. So I'm gonna go with Spoon, a series of sneaks. So if you're familiar with me, I think they became more popular with Girls Can Tell and Kill the Moonlight and Gimme Fiction. But for me, this is my favorite Spoon record. It's still got that that edginess to them, to to the to the songs, to the production. It's so unique, it, and in some ways, it's so simple but so effective how he composes and writes these songs. I love the way that I love the way it sounds. I think it sounds as good now as it did then. I think, and and not only good but original. I think it sounds as fresh now um, when I listen to it as it did at the time when I first heard it. So love this record a lot. If you don't know this and Telefono, their first two records, go back and check them out. We we might be talking about that record, Jay, uh, later down the line when we do our new roundtable series called uh, Origins, where we talked about a 90s band that got their start in the 90s but became huge and popular in the 2000s. Also, earlier mentioned Death Cab for Cutie. That would be another appropriate one for this series in the coming years. It got mentioned in the by our Patreon commenters, but Hums Downward is Heavenward is an album that has absolutely stayed with me throughout my entire life that I have loved. I loved it from the first single when I saw the weird video for Coming Down, on, yep. uh, or Coming Home, I mean, um, on uh, MTV 120 Minutes, and um, just love that record all the way through. I've sat with it, tried to figure out its weird time signatures on guitar, and there's just so much to listen to on that record so many different sounds and weirdness and and it's just it's just a phenomenal record um yeah i want to mention some of the other albums that our folks over at patreon brought up that we didn't get to johnny hooper he brought up sunny day real estate's comeback album how it feels to be something on that's a really good record and that's what i traded the bob mold for oh really (laughs) Yeah, and then they did a repress of it, which is fantastic. But I, I had yeah. I just could, could have waited, got an affordable copy of it. Oh well. Uh, he also mentioned uh, a band called Thrush Hermit and their album Clayton Park. I'm not familiar with them. Some people are gonna have to go uh, check that out. Any any of you guys familiar with Thrush Hermit? I've heard of it. I know okay. I've seen yeah, it in the pins, but yeah. yeah, same. I've heard of it too. Keith Sawyer. He mentioned Sloan's Navy Blues. Mm, yeah. Yeah, good record. Also, Josh Rouse's debut album, Dressed Up Like Nebraska. Oh, yes. That's a good record. Yep. Scott Witt, who was just on the show, he did the Gathering uh, album with us, but he also mentioned the records by Vast, Visual Audio Sensory 
Theater. Oh, wow. That's one I forgot about. Yeah. Monster Magnet's Power Trip, uh, Buckethead's Colma, and Paul Gilbert's King of Clubs. I've not heard those last two, the Buckethead or the Paul Gilbert record. So, yeah, he also mentioned that 1998 was two huge metal bands, Van Halen and Iron Maiden, both put out albums with replacement singers. And both of them were not good. So uh, stick with what you know is, what, I guess, the, the rule there. So that's our episode on favorite and uh, various categories of 1998 albums. We covered a lot. We'll do a few minutes of bonus content over at our Patreon page. So if you want to check it out, bring up some albums. I've got a list of albums that I want to throw out that you guys, we didn't get to. So just to get some feedback on those. But I want to remind everybody, remind everybody you can go to patreon.com forward slash dig me out to hear or to join us and hear the bonus content we're about to record. You can also get entered into our quarterly contests, our giveaways for all of our Patreon members, whether you're at the 250 or the dollar level. I also learned that you can just enter it and enter any amount and you can join us at that level too. Uh, if you want to go to $1.7 or 1550 or whatever you're you'll get all the access so as long as it's over a, a dollar or a, a dollar or more i should say and then of course if you like what you heard itunes that's where you should go andy jim chip thank you so much all for uh coming back and being on the show um, my pleasure andy where thank should you. people go just go to andydare.com uh got podcasts articles all sorts of stuff um, I consider 1998 the apex of the compact disc, and if anybody knows my show, I am an outspoken advocate of the compact disc. I own over 4,000 of them, so it's near and dear to my heart, and uh, just thanks for having me again, guys. Appreciate it. You do own some cassettes, though. Yeah, I do have about 200 cassettes, maybe, something like that. Yes, I, I enjoy your Tape Tuesday <laughs> posts. Thank you. Appreciate it. Jim, where should people go to listen to your podcast? Sure. However they listen to Dig Me Out, they can find Vinyl Emergency, whether that's on, uh, I guess, SoundCloud or Stitcher or Apple slash iTunes or what have you. Uh, and uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Vinyl Emergency uh, as well. On the Instagram, I'm usually posting uh, pics from the record collection and everything, but um, episodes and um, all that sort of good stuff. Uh, we also do Spotify playlists associated with each episode. So if people are listening to somebody talk about their, uh, you know, memories of vinyl or their vinyl collection, and they don't have a chance to write down some of the albums that maybe they're hearing about for the first time. People can go to the Spotify playlist associated with every episode. Those are on our Twitter and Facebook pages, and they can uh, get, uh, you know, an hour or two of uh, music that they might not have normally heard. Um, it's all stuff from artists or albums or, or songs that uh, I and the guest uh, discussed on that particular episode. Um, so yeah, so those are the kind of places people can. Uh, come to find out what's going on and uh, as always guys it's been a been a treat thanks for having me thanks for coming back and chip it's yeah it's kids interview bands right dot com it is um also columbus calling which is yes. while it's columbus focused it's really um i found that i actually did a lot more interviews with bands coming to columbus than actually focusing on columbus bands so um maybe try to change that up this year also on newsstands, uh, the new issue of the Big Takeover magazine, um, where I reviewed 20 or so CDs for the current issue, which has Slow Dive on the cover. So you can find that anywhere fine magazine music magazines are sold. Excellent. Nice. 
All right. For Jay, I'm Tim. We are out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash digmeout and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com.